So I know I've done this before, but still, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Absolutely, yeah. My name's uh, Jack Anderson. I'm a performance specialist at uh, P3 Applied Sports Science in Santa Barbara, California. Um, I oversee all of our amateur athlete training and programming um, and then assist with our professional athlete training um, in the mornings. So, yeah, we get the best of both worlds over here. We get some nice California sun. We get to work with some elite athletes in the morning and then develop some youth uh, athletes in the afternoon. So it's a it's a good time. Cool, man. I know. I I just talked to like, uh, Coach Tom, chat coach. Oh, you did. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Like a few days ago. How uh, how was that? How was he? It's good. It's good. Learn a lot from him. Yeah, Tom's a Tom's a good guy. He actually uh, prior to to taking the job in Atlanta at P three, um, he did a bunch of stuff with like, I'm sure you already know this because of the podcast, but he did a bunch of stuff with like Santa Barbara track club and he was a pretty solid athlete himself. So, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. That's awesome. You had him on. Yeah. Cool. Cool guy. So I I noticed in P3, you guys like train a lot of like, uh, NBA players or like basketball players. Right. So, uh, for those players, they, for those younger players or for those who want to get drafted, they always want to like jump higher. So in order to train our athlete to jump higher, is there like anything you be focusing on, like strength or like plyo? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, first off, with all these guys that we bring in for the pre-draft process, we take them through our entire battery of assessments, which includes a lot of jumping on the force plates, right? So um, when we do that, we get a lot of underlying metrics um, that we found some of which correlate to higher jump performance. So um, a lot of these guys come to us and they already have like pretty elite jumping abilities. And since they're here for such a short period of time, a lot of times it's not something we necessarily are looking to move or do move um, because they're already so elite at it. But since we've been able to test all those those athletes, we found that, for example, um, uh, peak concentric force, for example, in the in a counter movement jump is a pretty good indicator um, or a big good correlate to jumping higher, for example. So um, some of the the underlying metrics we discovered um, kind of help guide the way in terms of like how we would we would set up a training program to get guys to jump higher. Um, I think where we're at now is trying to figure out like which of those metrics are the most plastic and what is the best way to train some of those metrics, if that makes sense. Um, to get a little more specific to like your question with like our pre-draft process, since guys are only in coming, they're coming off a of college basketball season. So some of them can, you know, be wearing a little something in terms of like injuries and stuff like that. Um, we sometimes kind of almost have to like start very remedially just to kind of like get some tendinopathy, right. And things like that. So that can cut into our time, which is already limited, like I said, before they leave to go to the draft. So we might have a guy for six weeks, eight weeks. I think like maybe 10 was the longest we've had someone before. Um, and if they are already, like, as I said, if they're already at the top of the, the top of the mountain when it comes to jump performance, I don't know, you know, how much we're going to be able to necessarily influence that. Um, however, sometimes we will get guys that come to us and, and that would be 
a training target to kind of improve some of those metrics, especially considering that they're going to be tested at the combine. Um, and we, it's never a good thing to fall below kind of like the averages. Um, and certainly a good thing to be above average in that. So we might train that, um, on occasion. And I would say, um, for us, it really depends on like what we're seeing in the assessment, whether we'd go more of more along the lines of strength training or plyometric training. Now we, all of our programming is pretty concurrent. So we're always going to do elements of both things in the programming that we do, um, where we start in terms of like from a plyometric perspective, uh, highly varies, right? We could start as remedially as like an Altus rudiment hop series, um, to train like proper ground contacts. Cause in some cases we're more interested in changing the mechanical properties of someone's jumping ability as opposed to their raw performance. Um, so we might start as, you know, something as simple as that. And then, um, you know, if someone's proficient or has already trained with us before in high school, and then they come to us for the pre-draft process, we can start a little further down the chain. Um, and, you know, do some more aggressive short ground contact plyos, uh, you know, such as, you know, hurdles, line jumps, et cetera, um, things that are going to provide more of a stimulus and try to like drive that raw performance number of jumping up. Um, strength training for these guys, it, it, it can be a little variable. Sometimes you, you get guys that have no base of strength training and sometimes something as general as strength training can certainly like have a positive translation over to uh, jump height, but uh, guys who have done it some at their colleges and stuff like that, you do start to see diminishing returns on how that can translate over to more athletic qualities, such as jumping. Um, that being said, I'd say like the strength training will always be an important piece for us because as these guys begin their NBA careers, uh, we've seen it's difficult for them to get consistent strength training if it's not prioritized by either teams or the player in the off season. If those things are not prioritized, um, it can lead to, you know, connective tissue issues, um, just lack of resilience, et cetera. And so we're all, we're always going to like lean into that strength work. Um, and I think usually the best case scenario for us is, is getting guys to understand the importance of it, getting them to find some movements they are comfortable with and that help kind of alleviate tendon pain or help them feel good. Um, and expose them to some of those higher forces under external load. And if we're doing those things and kind of helping over an eight to 10 week process, getting them to understand why it might be important to continue doing this every off season and even touch on it in season. Um, that's a huge win for us. Cause there are a lot of guys that don't do that in the NBA and um, down the line, some of these higher performers, it, it really doesn't come down to like getting them to perform better. in some of these physical tests we give them, it's more just repeating it over and over again and staying healthy and, and weight training is a big key to that. So, um, yeah, we're always going to train those two things where we start and what we choose is just going to be dependent on what we see in the assessment and our conversation with the player and figuring out what works best for them and how to kind of give them a big picture view of how to train um, for a career rather than train for a few months, you know. So you mentioned that you're going to do a battery of tests and there's going to be some metrics you'll be, you're going to be looking at. So uh, you mentioned like... Uh, peak eccentric force right so besides peak eccentric force is there like other metrics you're going to be looking at for sure yeah we definitely we definitely will on um, we we have our assessment is um for our pro athletes is uh we can get kinetic and kinematic measurements right so we can get all of our kinetic stuff kinetic stuff on the force plates and then all of our kinematic stuff we use 3d motion capture um to do that so um there we have like an 
infinite, almost infinite, it seems, amount of data points that we collect from those two things. Um, each test we run, we've kind of found certain metrics that we deem are like the highest correlate to the raw performance number. And like I said, we're kind of at this stage now trying to figure out like which of those underlying metrics are trainable um, and what would be the best options to train them on the training floor, if that makes sense. So um, sorry, I got a train going by here. You probably hear it. <laughs> um, uh, there's always, always, always a train going by here, usually during podcasts. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so as far as like our underlying metrics, for example, then yeah, we can look at phasic metrics. Um, as I said, like peak concentric force is one that we found to be a very high correlate to, uh, jumping higher. Um, it's actually been interesting. We can kind of touch on this one in particular. Um, we've found in our pro population that it's like tough to train, especially given that we just don't have a lot of pro athletes that train here for a super long time. Um, so it's interesting. We've kind of gone through some interesting thought experiments and like how to train that I think. And our initial conversations, a lot of us were talking about um, training strength movements in the concentric phase only, um, doing plyos that would be very concentrically oriented, uh, training isometric uh, exercises at certain joint angles where we're seeing the most amount of um, peak concentric force in a counter movement jump, for example. Um, and I think you know, well, in theory, like that kind of makes sense, right? We want to train one particular phase of a movement, then we train that phase in all of our training. However, I'm kind of seeing a lot of research recently, and we've kind of shifted our discussion more to this recently, that kind of focuses on um, the coupling action of the eccentric and concentric phase, the stretch shortening cycle, all of these things playing a factor in giving you increased concentric force outputs or potentially doing so. Um, so I've kind of shifted my focus a little bit more to things such as like accentuated eccentric loading or AEL. Uh, it's kind of a, a, you know, big topic that everyone talks about these days, but what if we can find a way to overload the eccentric either from a, um, and, and I guess it's not truly overload because then you wouldn't be able to, to have a concentric, but what ways can we come close to super, super maximally loading the eccentric phase either via mass uh, increased mass or increased uh, velocity, right? Either increasing one of those two variables so that we get higher braking forces, but not to the point where we take away the ability of the stretch shortening cycle to do its thing and unleash some of that kinetic energy that we've, or uh, potential energy we stored up in the, in the eccentric phase. Um, and then seeing a higher output concentrically on the other side of that. Um, and, and again, a lot of this is like, some research is indicating this is a possible thing where we can get higher concentric force outputs from this coupling of, you know, higher breaking forces in the stretch shortening cycle. Um, and I think it's worth pursuing and it's something we're looking at right now, trying to find certain loads um, in, for example, like a dumbbell drop box jump, for example. So we have heavy dumbbells, we load up, drop them at the bottom of the movement and come out and we try to make it as natural a feeling a jump as possible. Um, and we've took, taken a look at some of that and we're crunching some of the numbers now just to see if we're getting um, higher eccentric forces from it. If we're, um, if our velocities are going up uh, at certain loads because of the weight of the dumbbells pulling us down, um, what is the resultant uh, concentric peak force that we're getting from that? Is our rate of force development improving? So we're looking at all these underlying things in that exercise in particular 
uh, particularly at higher loads, because a lot of research has shown um, positive effects up to like 30% body weight in using some of these things. But we've gone up to like 70 or 80% body weight with some of our amateur athletes. And it looks good, but we want to confirm now like and use the force plates and use our technology to kind of see um, if some of these heavier loads are eliciting higher braking forces and result in higher concentric forces because of that. Um, so it's just kind of a nice, like that's, that's kind of how we would go through uh, something here in a, in a lot of ways. When we, when we stumble across something that's interesting to us and we're doing something a little differently from the research, we're going to, we might implement it first in this case we have, and then we're going to go look at it on the plates uh, and in hopefully a novel and new way and then see if what we think is happening is actually happening and attach a, a quantifiable objective uh, number to it and then kind of go from there, you know, and we're kind of in that process right now. So I, I can't really like say what we're seeing yet um, objectively, but uh, it's been really fun kind of looking into that stuff. Cool. So since you guys like shift from like pure concentric to like a little bit more about like eccentric, do you guys like, uh, uh, see some metrics about like eccentric, like peak eccentric force, that kind of stuff. We we look at all that stuff for sure. Um, peak eccentric force is something I think that's like uh, some of the research, and then some of what we've seen here, particularly in like our amateur side, is like we see increases in peak eccentric force with a lot of like an introduction to weight training, especially if you've like never had that before. Um, that can really kind of move peak eccentric force in my opinion, uh, especially amongst like our younger kids that come in. Um, and then the other, the other way we can do that, like I said, at least in my eyes right now, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is fact, but um, not only is, is loading heavy, heavy strength work and like loading heavily via external load in the eccentric phase. Not, not as that, that's not the only way to kind of train peak eccentric qualities, right? Because again, like think about how we're getting this number, right? We're getting it from a drop jump. Uh, we're getting it from a counter movement jump. We're getting it from the, those tasks. Therefore, I would also think it'd be smart, at least in my eyes, to train those tasks, right? In training. So for example, like a drop jump, we can create a ton of eccentric force via impact, right? By falling farther and faster, right? Um, when those things happen, we see we have to manage uh, increasing impact forces and then be able to redirect them uh, into the direction we want to go, either vertically or horizontally or things of that nature, right? So um, I think a lot of times we think about eccentric training as like heavy, slow loading with a lot of like a lot of mass, like maybe even like or a lot of load. So maybe even like a super maximal amount of amount of uh, external load that we cannot even overcome concentrically. And that is valid, but a lot of times, especially in our scenario and situation, we don't have people for long enough, or we don't have people who are uh, like have enough of a training age to handle super maximally centric loading via weight training. So I've looked at velocity as a way to kind of um, uh, check that box off as and try to get us closer to super maximally centric training. It's never truly going to be super maximal because if we're we see a corresponding concentric movement or phase then obviously it wasn't too much for us to overcome um but i do think like increasing velocity demands is a good way to kind of get around the load issue if you have athletes that just can't handle that um and like i said if you're doing it in the context of plyometrics i i that's probably the, the best way to train uh, for improvements if we're looking to improve peak eccentric force for somebody in a drop jump why not do drop jumps you know why not do drop jumps in increasing intensity so that 
athletes learn how to handle these forces and redirect them, you know, in ways that, that, uh, that serve them well. Great. Great. So, uh, we often talk about like, in order to jump higher, you need to jump a lot, but, uh, so there's some coaches going to talk about, uh, you're going to, you're going to teach them how to land and teach them how to like, uh, jump properly. So for you guys, you're going to, how to like introduce player to your athletes or Good how question. to, pro- sorry, how to program plyo yeah yeah for sure um we don't necessarily like we have a some i feel like some coaches have a progression and they're always going to start someone at like the same progression and then work their way up and that's not necessarily a bad thing um i think the beauty of like our assessment process is we can kind of like by looking at some of the biomechanical things in the in the assessments that we run um we can kind of assess where an athlete might be on our list of progression because we also have that um and so we don't necessarily have to start at square one every time with some of our athletes right um it's highly dependent on their readiness their training age um you know what they've experienced before etc um we also see athletes like display different styles of jumping right we we have a paper on that that came out a few years ago that took our NBA cohort and essentially broke it into three clusters um, in terms of like how much range they went through, how, how short of a time they were on the ground while jumping in the counter movement jump, all that sort of stuff. So we don't really believe there's like one set way to jump and land right um, in sport being that it's chaotic. There really, it, you, you're not always going to be able to achieve like what we would consider to be like optimal landing mechanics or like optimal jumping. Um and I think it's important to be cognizant of that. That Now, that doesn't mean we're going to do like sloppy training in here because of that, right? We're going to find way, try to find ways to meet the athlete where they are at, give them a stimulus that is challenging. And then when it looks like they've handled it well, move on to the next, the next progression or the next stimulus that's going to cause the adaptation we're looking for, maybe from a biomechanical perspective, right? Um, I think a, a good example of this, this isn't quite plyometrics, but... Um, we do like a lot of like neuromuscular control drills, such as like hop and holds as like accessory exercises here. Um, and uh, we will always start with like a pretty ba- we'll generally start with a pretty like basic progression and see if the athlete is able to handle kind of um, hopping from one leg to the other, sticking a landing and kind of like controlling it. And I, I think we don't, we don't really do that necessarily for like optimal landing mechanics for one, it's a good teaching tool just to understand like what the foot and ankle are doing and how it's affecting the knee up the chain. Because at the end of the day, like having, you know, a lot of relative rotation where that tibia externally rotates and then the femur internally rotates over top of it, that causes a valgus moment that like, you know, from what we've seen is just not what you're looking for. Um, So just kind of giving them that context of like, this is what happens every time you're landing maybe you ought to think about like this strategy to make sure that doesn't happen. It could be like a rotation of the torso over top of the leg. So you're actually like getting into that hip on the side, you're landing. It could be a more active foot where arches are doing more work. So you're not landing passively at the foot. Um, that's, those are the type of things we could do in that, in that setting uh, and then progress from there and make things more chaotic, harder, reactive, whatever we want to do um, in order to do that. And we kind of take the same approach with our plyometrics, right? Where, 
Um, we're going we're gonna to assess where we think we can start you. We're going to assess whether we think you need more long uh, duration ground contact plyo work or short duration ground contact plyo work. Um, and then kind of pick what is needed based off of that uh, and then go from there. So I can be more specific if you if you want examples of that. But that's kind of what we would do from a big picture standpoint. Cool. Okay. So can you like give us some expense examples or example? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate um, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as far as we go, we have like we have kind of a range of short to long ground contact plyometrics, right? Um, something like a pogo or a hurdle hop in the it, um a hurdle like low banana hurdle hop like in a pogo like pogoing over them. Those would be our shorter ground contacts. Um. There's a lot that needs, those are, those can be complicated for some athletes because if they present a lot of ground contact issues. So for us, it's like, we're not seeing active dorsiflexion upon landing, uh, you know, an aggressive strike from the ball of the foot with the knee slightly bent. So we're not landing completely stiff legged. And then also just managing, um, a rhythm of moving forwards or backwards by kind of using the arms to do that as opposed to like swaying back and forth with the trunk. Um, there's a, there's a lot of pieces that go into some of these shorter contact plyos that some people aren't super good at. Um, so we're going to, you know, if we see someone with ground contact issues, we're going to hit that a lot, that kind of stuff a lot. Um, we're going to hit jump rope a lot because we can get so many reps at the jump rope and kind of teach what we're looking for in a very easy setting, uh, with very little impact. And over time, we've seen those things kind of move, particularly in our amateur population, where they get used to landing with a dorsiflex foot. They get used to attacking the ground with the ball of their foot. They get used to not traveling through excessive ranges of like supination to pronation. Like obviously those things are good, like in, in the right context. But when you watch some people do some of these drills, you kind of see like, oh, there's way, there's a lot of like uncontrolled action going on at the foot and ankle right now. Um, and for some, for some people, it never, it doesn't look as bad as for others. Like not all of these things are created equal, right? Like someone might display some of these things that we deem to be like problematic in an assessment. And it will be less of an issue for me when I watch it as opposed to like someone else. Um, and it, it becomes like a bit of a subjective game despite our object, more objective, like assessment of ground contacts. Um, and so when we put people through some of these shorter contact plyo drills, we're always kind of looking to see like what they're, what they're displaying, whether they have the coordination for the movement. Cause a lot of times too, like they just haven't been taught some of these things. So if you teach them these things, like they can pick it up right away. And it's just a learned thing as opposed to like a, a physical limitation, if that makes sense. Um, so you kind of have to decide when you're picking these things, like how quickly can I progress it? And usually within the first session or two, you can tell like, Oh, this person's, it's going to take a little longer than someone else on these hurdles. And I'm probably going to have to spend a little longer on that before I move on to something like a more aggressive, like a line jump where I'm doing a series of drop jumps off of boxes or hurtling over higher boxes or something like that. It's like, if, if I see like, uh, physical limitations in hurdles, I'm not going to move on to, to more aggressive, like line jumps, for example, if I see it as more of a learned thing and someone's a good athlete and they pick it up very quickly, yeah, we can move right into that. Um, you know, if I think it's like, you know, not skipping any steps along the the path to development, right? Because it's like, that's the other thing is, is like, we're not just going to progress all the time because things look good. Um, I might keep that line jump under my belt and save it for later when I, when I want to impose like a stimulus that I think is really going to like put them where they need to go, right? Like we have some very good, like 13 year olds 
in here, but like I would, they could probably do line jumps, but it's like, I'd rather just like wait a year or two and let puberty do its thing. And like, you know, train some other things and get them proficient at like lifting and, and all those other things and kind of like wait to hit those line jumps until I've kind of exhausted some of the other lower hanging fruit. So that way it's like, we don't see diminishing returns on something as aggressive as a line jump by the time they're 15 years old. It's like, I would rather save that for when they're 15 and it becomes like a super potent stimulus for them then. So it's almost like holding your trump card and knowing exactly when to play it from a plyometric perspective. And a lot of what's factored into that is just kind of how things are looking, where the athlete is at on their development stage and, and uh, it's, it can be start to become a bit of a subjective game as a coach to figure out like, you know, what they need and, and where they are at, if that makes sense. Of course, of course. So there's like plyo, there's like strength training. And like you mentioned, you guys are going to pair it with each other. So how exactly do you like pair these two? Is it like... uh? When you do like speed strength, you're probably gonna reduce the ground ground contact ground contact time. And when it's at max strength, you're gonna try to like jump higher that kind. So the ground contact contact time is gonna be longer. Is that the process or yeah? That's that's one way you can do it. We don't do that. Some of what you said we do. Some of what you said we don't. Um, especially in the amateur side, I'm trying to kind of provide the most well-rounded, um, I guess, well-rounded program we can, we can provide for the kids. So in a lot of cases, um, we have our warm, our dy general dynamic warmup everyone does. Then we have something a little more specific to certain groups of kids in like a extended warmup period. And then we move into some like speed or power work. That's like solely speed or power work generally. Um, and that is picked based on needs and sport and stuff like that. So that kind of exists in a vacuum on its own. Right. Um, and then when we get into like the, um, like the, the blocks of training itself, where we have like two complexes, we're usually going to put three to two to three exercises together in a, one complex and then two to three exercises together in another complex. And then our lower body days, which is probably where this is most applicable. We're usually going to do some sort of like speed strength movement or, um, yeah, yeah, usually a speed strength movement, sometimes a strength movement, and pair that up. Um, so that's like your A1, and then your A2 would be some sort of corresponding plyometric or power uh, movement, if that makes sense. And for me, it's like if we have kids that come in three times a week, we're usually going to train lower body twice. Um, and we're going to have a day where we focus on um, shorter contact stuff, so like maybe some sort of like sprinting or change of direction stuff. Um, and cause that's about, you know, again, sprinting itself is gonna be the shortest ground contact you can have with all of this stuff. Uh, and then maybe something a little longer contact based in the session itself. Right. So we can on day one, that might be the way it is. Um, or, or we can theme it. Honestly, you can have like both things be, be short ground contact. That's probably a little more applicable actually. So some sort of sprint or change of direction in the, in the speed and power, uh, block of the training for the day. And then in the first complex, we would pick something like um more vertical based right where we're doing like a short ground contact plyo so everything's kind of short ground contact theme for that day and then in the second uh training day of the week we might do something that's a little more power based we're on the ground a little longer like a loaded jump or um 
you know, even, even like a, yeah, loaded jump would be a good example of that, or like some sort of medicine ball throw for max effort. Um, those are the types of things we'd pick on like a shorter contact day and you can mix and match those things. For me, the biggest thing is, is like knowing whether someone is, um, you know, more power muscularly driven or like twitchy elastic driven. And if, if they're one or the other, I then have to decide, am I going to double down on like what they're good at? Or am I going to like attack what they're bad at? You know, and with a lot of these kids, you really can't go wrong either way. It becomes, again, a, a bit of a subjective uh, evaluation. I actually give you like a really good example. We have one one kid in here that plays soccer and he's had a long history of like extensive amounts of aggressive plyometric training in the vert, like vertically. Right. Um, and I, honestly, like I think that stuff is really good in a lot of ways, like you're getting, you know, a lot of breaking uh, force, you know, with that kind of stuff, managing breaking forces. Um, you're, you're improving vertical, vertical jump, which isn't the end all be all in soccer, but it's certainly not a bad thing. And you're developing like general fast switch muscle fibers and all the other things we talk about that come with plyometric training. So all those things are good, but he went so far down that rabbit hole that when it came to like getting him um, on the track a little more and sprinting a little more and changing direction, he actually was like really heavy footed because in plyometrics, we kind of preach a lot of like rigid foot structure, hitting the ground, attacking the ground, um, you know, big impacts. Like those are things that we want to see, at least in my eyes, like in plyometrics, but in sprinting, we want things to be a little, little less attacking the ground. Like if you attack the ground for the sake of attacking the ground, especially in sprinting, Kid just throw off timing can make you heavy footed. It will, it will make you slower. And this kid was like a perfect example of that. So he's kind of had to unlearn that strategy with his feet in, in linear sprinting uh, over the last little bit. And I haven't done many flyers with him because I don't want to reinforce a pattern that I think is like actually actively hurting his sprinting, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's like huge for us in here is to kind of determine like, is this athlete going to benefit more from like sprint training and like horizontal force production or more from like vertical force production and plyometrics? Uh, and, and for kids that come to us, like kind of as a, as a blank slate, I'm going to give them both. Um, for kids that come to us with kind of already some sort of training history, like this, this kid did, it was like, okay, like I don't, these aren't bad things, but for, for you, it's they, they're kind of working against some of your weaknesses that especially in soccer are very important. Like I need you faster. Like you can't be the slow and, and play in the midfield, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of how we look at that stuff. Great thoughts, man. <clears throat> so, uh, since we talk about like plyo, I kind of want to ask your thoughts about like what's the difference between stretch learning cycle and muscle slack. Um, you're talking about like stiffness, kind of. Yeah. 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 Um, that's, that's interesting. I don't think about this a ton. I would say like how we just from a practical, cause I guess I do in a sense, but I don't think about it in those terms necessarily, but it's like in a practical sense, I would like to see the stretch shortening cycle, like be aggressive. You know what I'm saying? The range can be kind of self-selected by the athlete unless I've decided otherwise. Um, I just need it to be aggressive. If that makes sense. Like there should, we shouldn't be get stuck at the bottom of a, of a loaded jump, you know, we get stuck. I either pick the wrong exercise or the kid doesn't understand that he needs to like get out of that with more urgency or, or more intent, you know? Um, I think both things like muscle slack does like play a factor in some things, right? Like 
sometimes I think we, we look at stiffness as like, we have to be as stiff as possible, but if, if we're stiff as possible, we're kind of taking away some of the natural like athleticism that occurs in some of these movements, right? Like we can't be stiff for stiffness's sake. Like it has to kind of like benefit us in the, in a way that allows us to go through a range that is comfortable for us, do it quickly and get the best possible like output in terms of power or, or whatever, or jump height or whatever it is we're looking for. Right. So that's kind of something it's like, you really have to get used to eyeballing with kids and like re- understanding like that wasn't what, what I wanted. Why was that? Was it like too much range? Was it too slow? Like, did they get stuck at the bottom and not utilize stretch shortening cycle? So for some kids, we're going to, we're definitely, I don't say, use the term muscle slack, but we're going to tell them to be more aggressive and like take some slack out of the system for sure. Other kids, I would prefer a little bit more. Like a, a good example is um, like a pogo. There isn't obviously like as much of a load up in a pogo, right? But some kids are like so stiff it like throws their body into this like weird, like inst- unstable position and it throws their timing off and they don't jump high and it doesn't feel good. So it's like, okay, like you have taken the stiffness concept I might've been telling you about talking to you about, and you've like absolutely overloaded it to the point where it's like affecting the movement negatively. So it's like, I'm going to try to put a little bit more slack into that system. If that makes sense. Um, an example on the flip side of that is we have had a couple like elite amateur jumpers come in over the last couple um couple months and like one kid's jumping over 30 inches in his standing vert like that's very impressive he's going he just went to college like he's a freshman in college over 30 inches is just bonkers um and um but it took him a long time to achieve it right so it's like to me we didn't really have enough just general total body stiffness to make that jump happen a little faster he plays volleyball so in some contexts, that's fine because sometimes some of the things you do in volleyball are less time dependent, right? Like if you get a good set, you it's kind of like, yes, you do have to time it up, but it doesn't have to be this like quick, no range of motion setup. Like you can load up, time it and kill it, you know? And so in that case, it's not super worrisome. But if you're blocking, right, you might have to get from A to B very quickly, go through minimal flexion and get up and make a block, right? And this kid kind of even told us like from a practical standpoint, like when I play, Sometimes I don't even get off the ground to make a block. Like, so we knew like your time on the ground to achieve the jump heights that you're doing is too long in some cases. So we're just going to train. Um, we're just going to train like limiting range of motion a little bit. And then also taking that range. Cause he went through a lot of, a lot of flexion at the hip and knee, um, particularly, particularly the hip. Um, and, uh, and so we just trained him to kind of shorten things up and make things happen faster in that amortization phase. Right. Um, and what that does obviously is like, you know, if you, you, we all understand this, that stretch shortening concept, it's, if you take too long, you lose some of that potential energy and things don't happen as fast for you. Right. So it's like, how can we get you to achieve similar or even better jump heights, um, with shorter contact time on the ground? So we spent a lot of his, uh, his training time here doing that. And we were able to lower it think by like 25%. So his time on the ground decreased by 25%. I think he jumped the exact same height. So that was like pretty successful for us. Now, was that the training or just me like explaining the concept to him? Like, did it take eight weeks of training to get him to understand this? Or was it just reiterating the concept and it became a learned thing for him? So I couldn't tell you if it was a structural adaptation or just kind of a motor learning adaptation, for example, but we know we changed it. Um, and it's interesting to think about in this concept of like, that's a good example of like someone that had too much slack in their system 
and we tried to give him just a little more like i guess we, we would call it like total body stiffness or whatever you want to call it so great great love that so uh that's all for like the jumping question mm-hmm. in our last like conversation last podcast we did you mentioned like there's like knee dominant rotation and hip dominant rotation can you like explain it to us like what's the difference between these two for sure for sure yeah um so we have a number of pitchers in right now for the mlb and um they've been in the league for a while so they kind of already have their strategy right and um we've kind of always like looked at lateral force production and like lateral performance as being a hip driven thing but some of these guys display like as you just said some some more knee dominant um tendencies or characteristics and when you have like a, an athlete that's throwing mid to upper nineties and has been in the league or has been in the minor league or the major league or anything like that um, for a number of years, you kind of know like that's their strategy and we're not going to like work to change any of those things. Right. Um, we're not going to take a knee dominant guy and go, well, our data suggests like hip dominance is just going to be better for you. I like these guys are already like at the top of the food chain when it comes to like lateral drive and lateral force production. So if you're doing it in a more knee dominant, variety and you're an elite athlete like we're not going to look to change that um when we look at amateurs we are going to like at least me i'm going to like tend to train them to utilize their hips more if they are not um however when watching a bunch of athletes do like a one-off skater for example which is our test for lateral force production um we see a number of things right like we sometimes we see athletes utilize their hip and, and displace their pelvis more horizontally to create their output. And then other times, like you said, we'll see people use their hips far less and more vertically displace their pelvis down, let the knee be more of the driver of that output. When I watch kids do these in training afterwards, it, it, this is becomes another subjective evaluation, at least in my eyes, where uh, I have to think, okay, like, do I like the way this looks if it's knee dominant, for example, because my inclination is to try to make it more hip dominant. So so I have to think, do I like the way this looks? And if not, how hard am I going to make, like sell out to get them to utilize their hip? Because again, if we put all of our eggs in the hip basket and make kids that aren't structurally set up to like horizontally displace their hips a lot or their pelvis a lot to, to create the output that they're trying to do, if we, if we utilize that too much and only think about it from that perspective, we might be robbing them of something that like or we might be having them do something that doesn't really like work with their, with their anatomy. You know what I'm saying? So I want to see the hip doing some work, but I'm not going to have it like rob them of like the fluid motion of the movement. And sometimes, especially early on with younger athletes, like you kind of wrestle with it for a month or two to figure out like, how far can I put, how hard can I push this concept of using the hip? Um, and when do I kind of accept uh, whatever their strategy is? If like they're starting to use their hip more, but it's been a grind to get them there, I might just kind of like leave it at that and focus on something else because the other big driver of of lateral movement is is the trunk, right? So we want to see kind of the upper body aligned in the direction we're trying to go and not whip backwards and then travel forwards, right? And there's always going to be like some, not always, but there's going to be some measure of that in most athletes. And that's another one we have to subjectively evaluate and be like, okay, like, is this an except? Is this too much? Uh, you know, or is this uh, is this way too much uh, trunk instability? Like, what do we need to do to correct that? Um, 
you know, how much coiling into that leg with the trunk are we going to allow for? Those are all like things you have to consider when you're, when you're looking at something in terms of like these lateral rotational movements. Right. Um, and a lot of times, again, like it's not all created equal and we're going to accept certain things out of some guys that were not for others. And, uh, it just kind of boils down to like us figuring out like what can be changed and how hard can we push it, uh, to get what we're after, which is ultimately like more lateral drive, more rotational power, et cetera. Cool. So, uh, for rotation, there's there's like knee dominant and he hip dominant. Sorry, is is that when it comes to jumping? Is that the same? There's is there also going to be knee dominant jumping and hip dominant jumping? Yeah, if you read our our paper that came out on jump strategies, the cluster training, or the, I'm sorry, the clusters um, that came out a couple of years ago, we kind of go into that, right? We have like um, stiff like flexors that go through minimal knee and uh, hip range of motion to achieve their jump. Uh, we have hip flexors. So guys who are going to horizontally displace their hips back a lot, the trunks going to probably come down more um, and they're going to go through a ton of range at the hip. And then you're going to have the, um, the hyper flexors who go through a ton of range at both the knee and hip. Right. And again, like this is important. Like some people tend to be like, Oh, well, which one's bad? Which one's the best? And it's like, not, not each guy like is going to, like especially these elite jumpers like there isn't one that's the best it's just what suits the guy the most when you have these non-elite athletes that come through they might display a, or be in a similar cluster and i might look at that and go i don't like where they are with this like we're gonna try to make things a little different for you you know um especially if their jump outputs are low it's like i feel a lot better doing that because i'm not taking anything away from a 20 inch vertical you know it's like whatever <laughs> you know like you're jumping 20 inches it's not <laughs> it's not a big deal so um yeah, there are definitely ways to to cluster that very similarly in terms of like how much range we go through. And the other kinematic thing that's interesting is like uh, the velocity at which we extend these things to produce the output we're looking for. Great. So I want to go back to the rotation stuff. So uh, we all know that baseball pitchers, in order to throw fast, they have to have like, a whip on in their upper body, right? So does the knee dominant rotation, hip dominant rotation affect how the upper body do the whip? That's a good question. I honestly don't know if I have a great answer for you on that one. So I'm going to like, yeah, I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to BS you for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no um, uh, um, I, I would say like, usually this like i guess the easiest way to say it is like usually the strategy of a hip or a knee dominant pitcher it's like you're gonna get uh, you're gonna get that whip action like they're gonna get it you know what i'm saying it's like whatever works the best for them to get it is what i would say and then you I, you know this is pitching such a rabbit hole but like then you have like all the other factors on the upper body that you can evaluate as well like arm slot and torque angles and, and velocities and things of that nature so it's kind of hard to speculate i would say it's kind of hard to speculate on that like there's definitely a connection there and i'm sure there's something uh that impacts that uh be, be it hip or knee dominant i just don't know so great no worries man so last question okay so uh for those rotational movement 
especially for like hitter for the baseball, what happens in the back leg and what happens in the front leg? This is a this is a fun question. I feel like um, when I watch rotation being done at other facilities like online and stuff like that, not all of them, some are great, um, but I think it's a mis pretty misunderstood concept uh, rotation a lot of times. Like I think people can talk about it, but then I don't know if they can see it necessarily all the time. And it certainly took me a long time too. Like I my my boss here is sees rotation very well and and has really kind of taught me all he knows about it and it's. It's made a huge difference um, to kind of learn from him on that. Cause I think previously I had like a lot of incorrect notions about it myself, but um, yeah. So for example, let's look at just a basic split, a shot put medicine ball throw or a split throw as we call it, right. Where the elbows kind of up in the back and then we're throwing through um, the setup is pretty important. So we can kind of walk through this. I think it's like an interesting exercise to walk through Um so you're going to set up in that back leg, which is going to be, you know, if you're a righty, it's your right leg. So let's just do that. Your right leg, you need to kind of like, I like to have the weight shifted under the medial arch and the ball of the big toe, right? When you're able to do that, it kind of like directs the, the angle of the knee in the direction you're trying to go, right? And so if you overly supinate and stick the knee out, now you have to travel through a range to find that propulsive angle you're looking for to throw. So it's kind of a waste of time. Um, in some instances. So that's how we'll set the foot up. And then once you begin the movement, we just want to have a little pressure into the back arm. So you're pushing kind of into that back arm. So that kind of like pocket of the shoulder is nice and tight. And then you're going to initiate the movement from the lower half, right? And this is something a lot of people talk about, but I don't know if they fully see or understand like what needs to happen here is that disassociation of the lower half from the upper half, right? We want to see that rotational action and that push off from the right leg occur um, before the torso and the arm starts to come through. So there should be, you could, we will sometimes like tell our athletes like weight with their hands. Um, so you're going to see that aggressive push off and rotation from the lower half. And then the upper body is going to kind of whip around. Like you talked about before, it's going to kind of whip around that rotational action and that's going to help propel the ball forward. And then you talked about the front leg. So Usually what we're going to do is we're going to start in a stance and then step forward into that, that left leg is going to step forward a little bit. And as we complete the rotational action and the, the, the upper body starts to come through after the lower body, we're, we're seeing a, a firm up on the front leg, which you see in baseball a lot. And, and a lot of the firm up concept is, is kind of like when that left foot comes down, we're pulling our hip. We're basically pulling into our heels. So our hip extends and we see that firm up in the knee and then kind of the weight shifts over top of that. And if we execute that properly, you see this kind of like violent rotational action of the hips. And if it's done, if the timing is done well in conjunction with like the upper body coming through, it's going to add like a little extra follow through and like punch into that, into that throw. Um, if you're not a baseball athlete, it can be kind of hard to teach. And we don't teach the firm up much to some of our field sport athletes. Um, just, it's just a lot of work for like minimal payoff because it's not something you really have to do. Um, but, but yeah, no, we'll, we'll do, we'll coach that up a lot in baseball. And a lot of the guys can naturally already understand how to do it. It's just kind of fine tuning some things. Um, the last little bit I will mention too, is sometimes you see, and this is where you see issues in my opinion, uh, with some, some rotational training is, is the left leg, the one in front usually, or sometimes will start in front of the right leg. So there's like, it's a closed stance. And that makes it very hard, especially for people that are locked up 
inter- in terms of internal rotation of the hip, it's very hard for them to fully turn out of that back leg because their stance is closed. So we'll teach it like more of an open stance, which allows a little more free rotational action of that back leg. And it usually helps like with the timing of things too, because they're not getting jammed up there. So while they're waiting with their upper body, there's actual rotation going on. Like a lot of, a lot of times we'll see some rotational stuff where like the back leg stays like squared up laterally and never rotates. It's like, okay, the upper half is rotating. So if that's what you're going for, like, great. Like if you want that upper body disassociation, like that's cool. But I think a lot of people aren't looking for that. They're looking for like true rotational work and they're not getting it because they're not allowing that, that, that back leg to actually fully rotate, you know? Um, so I think those are like the big considerations when you look at like back leg to front leg and, and what's going on there with those. The, the last thing I'll say too, and I think this applies to like sprinting as well. If you look at like a, a force time graph um, of someone applying force into a plate on a sprint or, or a jump or anything like that, once you hit peak concentric force, if you are familiar with the graph, it's, that's a peak, right? And then it starts to drop. Once we've hit like peak extension or even not even sometimes, sometimes it's before peak extension. It's like, we're very close to it. We're extending, but we haven't reached like complete extension. That's when you hit your peak concentric force. So after that, the, the, the force time graph, the, the force is going down. So you kind of have to time up things in a way where it's like, sometimes we talk about pushing to the ground, pushing to the ground, pushing to the ground. Well, we're in the ground forever, but force is going down as that's happening, right? So at some point it's like, we're, we're losing force and spending a lot of time on the ground and it's disrupting the timing of the movement. So I'll even sometimes teach like, ripping the back foot out of the ground at a certain point to kind of help end that push and allow the timing and the natural things that are going to happen on the front side to like happen more quickly and effectively. Um, same thing with sprinting. It's, it's, you can't spend all day on the ground because if you do that, that swing leg is late and getting through and it just throws off timing. And again, we're just pushing for pushing sake. And it doesn't even make sense from a force perspective because we hit peak force, like three million, you know, half a second ago, I'm exaggerating, but half a second ago, we hit peak force and we're still pushing in the ground. Like, why, why are we doing that? Like if it's disrupting timing and our ability to get limbs in the right position for the next step, like we're, we're wasting time there. It's not, it's not doing any, it's not helping us, you know? So I think that's like an important thing to consider too, especially in rotational movement is kind of like ripping that back foot out of the ground at a certain point so that we can transfer all the weight forward, firm up and get a nice crisp rotation going on. Great. Love this. <laughs> that's that's like all the questions I have for today, man. Really cool. appreciate it. So yeah, absolutely. For those like coaches and therapists that are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they find those paper that P3 published? And where you know, can they reach out to you? You know what? I'll send you the links to the papers that we just had another one come out on the skater as well. So it's actually yeah. relevant because we talked about the skater. So I'll send you those if you want to like put them in your notes or whatever. Yeah, um, I don't have the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the link memorized, but I'll send them to you. Um, and then, and then for me, you can um, feel, I'll, I'll send you uh, my email. You can throw it on there too, but it's J Anderson at P3.md. Certainly hit me up there or on Instagram. I'm probably going to be quicker to get back to you on Instagram. So it's Jack underscore Anderson, I, I, I. Um, you can hit me up there as well. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. It's really fun. Uh, P3 is really kind of like brought me into my own, I think as a coach, and I'm really grateful for all they've done for me. So I can't thank the guys here enough. Like a lot of what I'm telling you is learned from them. Uh, it's not me coming up with a lot of this stuff. So, um, you know, if, if what I'm saying is like, 
things you've never thought about before, things you're interested in and want to dig deeper, certainly hit me up on, on Instagram or email and we can, we can chop it up there. So. Cool. Appreciate that.